Hey, everybody. Welcome to Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and I'm so happy you're here with us. If you're just joining for the first time, I am a special needs mom, a special needs attorney, and a best-selling author. So please grab your coffee, and if you're like me, you might be listening in your car. I spent a lot of time in the car in my day. And please join us for some important discussions to help you thrive in this complex special needs world. Each week, we're going to chat with parents and experts, and sometimes parents who are experts, to offer compassionate advice for all stages of your life. These are the conversations you would have with your best friend if your best friend was an expert like me. Let's go. Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. So this week, you just get me. Woohoo! I am, you know, really contemplative this week because it is rare disease week uh, for me as a Catholic. It's the beginning of Lent, which is just very contemplative. It makes you think. Um, I spend time during Lent thinking about my family, thinking about service to others, uh, praying a lot more than I usually do. And, you know, the last, um, the last couple of weeks, I've been putting out some great podcasts about education and transition and some inspiring stories like Brian Thomas. And I kept thinking, you know, it's been a while since I've actually introduced myself to this podcast and, and told my story. So as I was sharing rare disease day information earlier this week, and it's the, the slogan is share your colors, share your story. I, I kept thinking that, yeah, it's probably time for those of you who haven't been listening from the beginning to talk about my story and talk about why I'm here. Because as we know, all stories are important. And why we tell our stories is we do it for ourselves. It's really good to get out all of those feelings and thoughts and to really be fresh with, um, you know, that, that look backwards and then moving forward from there. But also we tell our stories to help other people. We tell our stories to share our journey, what we've learned, things that might be, might be helpful or, or might make somebody think about options. And in the disability community, I want to add that we share our stories, we tell our stories to be seen, because sometimes we just don't feel seen, um, which is so strange to me, because as we've said on this podcast and in so many other places, the, the numbers that we have for our country um, from the CDC and other places is one in five. One in five people are impacted by some condition that would be classified as disabling. It could be physical challenge. It could be uh, a low incidence challenge, like being 
blind or deaf or hard of hearing. It can be a developmental delay, an intellectual disability. It could be healthcare issues that can be crippling sometimes. And I don't mean literally, I mean figuratively, but also I guess literally too. Things like heart disease and diabetes and and MS and you know all so many things, so many things. Being disabled doesn't mean that you're sitting home collecting social security, although some of us do that. There are so many people out there that are the face of disability. And again, on Rare Disease Day, share your story, share your colors. So every rare disease has a color that goes along with it. And for mitochondrial disease, which my Elizabeth had and passed away from, the color is green. So you'll see me often when I'm sharing my story in my, what I call my iconic green dress. So um, what I really would love to do is to just spend a few minutes right now sharing my story with you. So I wrote a story, I wrote a book, uh, Butterflies and Second Chances, a mom's memoir of love and loss from my journey and my experiences. And, you know, the number one question that people ask me through this podcast and through all of my direct social channels, people will ask me, hi, how did you get your book published? You know, how did you write it? How did you publish it? How's it doing? What I want to tell my story. I want to be an author, you know, some variation on that theme. So my story, my book started out as journal entries. Journal entries that came from a place of loss and from needing to get out all the feelings that I was having. When I got partway through what was later to become this book, I looked at it and realized that this could really be something and it could be helpful to other people. So I changed some things around and I finished the story in a more organized fashion, which is not my skill set, got an editor and decided to do a hybrid self-publishing job. So publishing is, you know, it's a strange animal. It's very hard to get an actual real book deal with a publisher these days, but a lot of people will self-publish and there's various ways to go about that. Self-publishing means that you own the rights to your book and you can distribute it however you like and you can market it however you like. When you work with a publisher, which can be phenomenal because they put money behind you and they promote you and they get you into all of these venues for being able to sell your book, the publisher owns the story, owns, I mean, you own your, you own your story, but they, they own the rights and the ability to distribute it. So depending on your contract, you, you know, you just need to be thoughtful about what you want. In the publishing world, the self-publishing world, the hybrid model I'm talking about is where you actually get 
a publishing company behind you that will edit and do cover art and will help you get your book out there, can help marketing. And it's kind of an a la carte service of what things do you need help with? Me, I needed a real editor because I'm dyslexic and um, don't always have the best organized brain. And so I really wanted that extra level of support and help. And then I decided that it would be great to have professional cover art and also the support of being able to do some marketing for the book. So that all went great. Um, I loved it. The book came out. It was wonderful. It hit Amazon's bestseller in the first couple of days in a couple of different categories, not major categories. You know, you can't, there, there's no way that you're going to knock off some huge celebrities off the memoirs list <laughs> because um, my book is a memoir. But in the categories that mattered, like parenting and grief and loss, it did really well. And I was so happy. So my story with Elizabeth, I was a younger mom, not young, 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 but in my 20s when I had Elizabeth and she was my first. I had barely gotten married when I got pregnant and um, it was absolutely wonderful, lovely, expected and for the first few months, I couldn't have been happier. But around five months or so, things just started to not be right with her. And they put me on bed rest because she wasn't growing and she was having a lot of difficulty in utero and the tests were not going well. So um, at 29 weeks, because I was getting checked up every single week, they discovered that she really wasn't moving and they needed to do an emergency C-section. 29 weeks. So for any of you who have children, you know that 29 weeks is not good. Uh, when she was born, she was even small for 29 weeks. She was just barely over two pounds. And she went immediately to the NICU, the neonatal ICU unit. And she struggled for her life for nine weeks. When we brought her home, we were told that she basically had a clean bill of health. There was nothing wrong with her. And she would just grow and thrive. But preemies would always be behind for the first couple of years. Well, things happened. She started having seizures. It was difficult because nobody believed me. And finally, she had one in the emergency room when I brought her in. And they were like, oh, wait, what the heck is that? That doesn't look right. And they finally called a neurologist because, you know, originally they were just saying, hey, that's a that's just a young mom. She doesn't know any better. She's just nervous. She doesn't know what she's looking at. And that, you know, was a story, was the story and was our struggle for a while until we got to a good spot with doctors and with teams of people 
it's something that parents raising kids with disabilities and rare diseases often struggle with. Trying to find that team that actually listens to you and considers you an equal and important member of the team, it's it's not easy. It It's easier now than it was. Um, and there are great programs out there like Operation House Call in our state, and many of you have programs like this in your state, where they actually send medical students out to people's homes to see how they live and to just get a feel for how fantastic and on top of everything parents are, as well as just seeing the kids as kids and not patients. When you can actually meet a kid in their natural environment, home, school, you know, playground, what have you, you get such a feel for things that that they can do, that who they are, and it's not the same when you're meeting them in the emergency room or in the hospital. I mean, obviously they're not at their best because they're sick, but also they're afraid, they're they're traumatized, there's all kinds of bad things going on. And so clearly you're not going to get their best. You're not going to see them smile and play and do do their kid things. So I'm such a huge fan of these programs that actually train medical students and not just medical students who want to go into this field. All medical students have to take a rotation through because they are going to encounter people with disabilities in every specialty that they have. Every doctor is going to have patients with disabilities in their in their program, in their patient list, in their roster. So um, fast forward to the first couple of years of Elizabeth's life. She wasn't getting any better. She wasn't improving. We knew she had a preemie brain injury, but we did not know until she was two and a half years old that she actually had mitochondrial disease. And by that time, we were already um, unable to feed her through her gut. We were on total parenteral, I hope I said that right, nutrition, TPN which is a challenge to do at home because you have to do sterile technique. I mean, we basically turned into a nursing home or hospital room, not even a nursing home, a hospital room. And at some points, ICU level care here at home. And I know many of you will, will know just what I'm talking about. We all become the experts in our kids' needs. And sometimes that makes us experts in other things. I used to joke that um not a nurse, but I play one at home. And that's because, you know, we could not get all of the care that we needed. Our insurance wasn't covering nursing care. We ended up having to get our state Medicaid program involved and they covered some, but they expect so much of parents and caregivers. They expect them to do so much care. And we're not trained for that. Um, it's patently unfair to everybody. And frankly, it doesn't always have the best outcomes. But I'll get off my soapbox about that. So we find out by going down to 
Georgia, where one of the mito specialists was. And this is a long time ago now, and it wasn't long after they started actually diagnosing mito. We find out that Elizabeth has mito. Um, it, they weren't sure exactly which complex, but they said it was Lee's-like disease because it wasn't quite on the nail on the head, Lee's disease. Um, and also she had um, a few other things going on as well. And if it was fatty acid oxidation disorder, FAOD as well. So lots going on there. Um, we, we entered into a research program, but could not actually find out, um, even until she died, any more than that of what she had. However, we did enter into this great community of mito warriors, and uh, it's been phenomenal. There were times when I backed out and could not be part of the community because I couldn't bear some of the stories of people passing away and looking when you have a three, four, or five year old and you're looking at the life of a 20 year old or 15 year old or, you know, 10, the 10 year old that passes away, it's really scary as a parent to look forward and see that in front of you and just wonder how bad things are going to get. At some point, I just made the decision to stop living in fear and stop living like death was around every corner. Part of that was really due to my second daughter, Caroline. Caroline brought so much joy and she was so different from Elizabeth. Um, she, she had all her own stuff going on, but she was, I suppose, what you would call a typically developing child. She definitely was unique and suffered a lot of sibling anxiety. And I'll never forget the first time that I realized that she was worrying about the future too. She's about six years old and we were getting ready for the day. At this point, I was already divorced and parenting alone and took me a long time to get Elizabeth ready for the day, about two hours to do all of the medical care and the personal care. And Caroline was just hanging out with me, watching TV in Elizabeth's room and, you know, just kind of doing her thing. And she looks up at me and she says, mom, when am I going to start changing Elizabeth's diaper? And that just floored me. I totally was choking back tears. I still want to cry thinking about it. I had not realized that she was processing all of this and watching me, watching me just, you know, exhausted and doing all of this care every day and just thinking like, hey, someday I'm going to do that. A six-year-old, you know, it's a lot to take in as a parent. I kind of choked down my feelings for the moment as we parents do. And I just told her, don't worry, mommy's got a plan. And you don't have to do anything but be Elizabeth's sister. And I didn't have a plan, <laughs> but I knew I needed to get one. And from from there on, you know, things started to change with us. We started to do trips and get out more and just do typical normal family things. It was hard. 
but it was important. I also spent time with Caroline separately. And I've talked about sibling stuff on this show a lot. It's really important to me that people do take into consideration what sibling supports they need. And I'm really, um, really firm on the idea that siblings should opt in to care and not have it thrust upon them. A lot of conversations need to happen. So then as Elizabeth, you know, got a little bit older and stronger, she kind of plateaued and that was great for us. Those were good years. But when she got to be a teenager, her disease took a really bad turn and she really started to fail. Um, the last two, three years of her life were pretty tough. A lot of things were going wrong. She kind of um, started to withdraw into herself. Eventually, she was seizing a lot. Her seizures were not controlled, and she needed oxygen. Um, and that's what happens with some mito kids. They just, um, it's a degenerative disease and things just start to, start to go, start to have difficulty. And, um, it was heartbreaking. Just the worst. Eventually it came down to me needing to make a decision to withdraw care which I did with my doctor, I had a phenomenal team at this point. It took a while to get there, but man, we we really worked great together. And she was just getting um, pneumonia after pneumonia and we couldn't stop it. So I made that decision to stop care. And then she died. She died at home and it was peaceful, but hard. Oh. It's been nine years and I still think of her every day. I miss her so much. But the weird thing is, you know, the world goes on and it's kind of just over. So, I'm wiping my tears away here. But for me, um, what happened after that was I kind of went numb. It took me about two years to crawl out of my hole. And God bless, I was married again by then to a wonderful man, Mark, who stood by me and kept everything together here. It was just not going to be possible without him. I don't know what it would have happened to me. Having that support system was incredible. Um, and even with all that support of family and friends, it took took me two years to start feeling again and, and living again, really. It's been a wild ride. Um, 
I I decided that after some huge contemplation that I was going to stick with my current profession and remain a disability attorney and an advocate. And I was actually going to take my experience and use it to continue to provide the best support and care that I could. But I was going to take it bigger than that. I was on a mission to uh, use Elizabeth as a a flag, as a, a symbol, and as inspiration for me to go bigger and to get to more people. And eventually the book was published and then my podcast was born and then Circle of Care started. That's our Facebook group that you are welcome to join. We have people from all over the country. In fact, a few people from international places who are on our circle. And it's got, I think, over 600 people now. We get together uh, every other week live and talk about things that are important to us. And it's an opportunity to share information and support and advice and to just be there for each other. So there's that. And then all of the professional things that I've been doing to keep Elizabeth's memory alive and to use her memory to help support other people. So there's a lot more that I can go into. um, And I'm going to save that for part two of the story about what it was like to try to work and parent these children and what it was like trying to keep a marriage going. That was uh, something that did not happen for me, but there's so much to talk about when it comes to our family's story. And I am going to save that for another day. I really appreciate you all listening to me. Would love to get any feedback, please direct message me or send me some information in any of my channels. Follow us um, on social. And if you like what you're hearing with this podcast, please rate and review. It is one of the best ways to get this podcast out to people who need this information and support. I thank all of you so much. Thanks for coming on my journey with me. And I am really so grateful that all of you are here. So hopefully you have a great day and I will see you in the next meeting. Bye. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.